we are. We have today and next week, and then our study will have drawn to a conclusion. And it has been my heart's desire from the very beginning just to show up here every week and remind you how much God loves you and that his word is the most interesting, fascinating, helpful thing that God has put on the planet. And as long as we want to be good students of it, he is going to bless that immensely. And I do feel like any minute we could be standing in his presence. So it'll be nice to have as much of his word captured in our heart and our mind. To, I want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. I really want to hear those words. Um, at the beginning of this study of the book of Ruth, I mentioned to y'all that my appreciation for the book was really many-fold. First and foremost, it is an historical account. Real people living real lives, doing real things. And from this little book, we learn all about the kinsman redeemer. We learn all the details of the Goel. And as we began, we took the time to go into the historical background of the book, uh, finding out, for example, the origin of the Moabites. And then we took time to look at several of the laws that govern the daily and annual behavior of the Hebrew people, things like the law of gleaning. But I don't think I ever mentioned the author of the book of Ruth. And in part, that is because we don't know who the author of the book is. It is supposed to have been Samuel, and that his reason for writing the book was to establish David's connection to the tribe of Judah and therefore his right to rule as king over Israel. And this comes from a prophecy in Genesis 49.9. Uh, Jacob is pronouncing a blessing and a prophetic word on all of his sons. And about Judah, he says, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies and your father's sons shall bow down to you. And that was a prophecy for the lineage of Judah, not just Judah the man, but for those who would come after. And indeed, it is this little book that links David to the lion of the tribe of Judah, to that messianic line. This little book also provides the foundation for a prophecy that would be given later by the prophet Micah in chapter 5, verse 2. As for you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, Though you are little among the clans of Judah, from you one will go forth for me, who will be ruler in Israel. His days are from of old, from everlasting. I love the way it's, read, it's uh, written in the King James. His days are from of old, from everlasting. I have heard many scholars speculate that when Christ was born in Bethlehem, Ephrathah, and the shepherds were keeping watch over their flocks by night, that the fields those shepherds were in were the fields of Boaz. And it was, in fact, to Bethlehem that Samuel was directed by God to find and anoint David as king. And when he arrived in Bethlehem, they had to send for David because he was out tending the flocks in the fields. Same fields? I don't know. Something you can ask when you get to heaven. It is interesting to me that Hebrew tradition to this day 
as part of their annual calendar, they read the book of Ruth every year on Shavuot. It's one of, Shavuot is one of the seven main events on the Hebrew calendar. And the, uh, the list of those seven are given in Leviticus chapter 23 for your notes. In verse 2, the Lord is speaking to Moses and he says, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, The Lord's appointed times, which you shall proclaim as holy convocations, my appointed times are these. Then he goes through the rest of the chapter and he gives the details of those seven feasts. We are going to look at just a couple of portions about Shavuot. It is covered in verses 15 through 22 there. But first, the seven festivals, God calls them holy convocations, my appointed times. Uh, And as I said a moment ago, the Hebrew calendar is organized around these seven holy convocations. The word convocation in part means a public assembly, but it can also be translated a rehearsal. If you have ever been to a Passover Seder, you will understand what that means. Every year at the Seder table, the Hebrews rehearse the deliverance from Egypt, including the 10 plagues and up to and including the um, Messiah who is prophesied. It's a fascinating thing to do if you have never been able to attend a Passover Seder, especially one given by a Messianic Jew. It is a fascinating, eye-opening experience, and it's an enormously celebratory time. They sit around the table for hours, literally up to four and five hours, and have this great feast. And throughout the feast, they will do these rehearsals, these ceremonial remembrances of the first Passover. As the Hebrews annually observed the feast days, they were rehearsing prophecies that pointed to or signaled something greater. In Colossians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul writes that with respect to the holy convocations, they're called festivals, new moons, and Sabbath days. With regard to all of those things, uh, they were just a mere shadow of what was to come. But the fullness, the substance of all of those shadows belongs to Christ. The feasts were meant to commemorate history, like the Passover Seder, remembering all that God did to deliver his people from Egypt, but also to rehearse a prophecy of something that would unfold later. And in the Passover, the thing that unfolded was the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, because he was indeed crucified on Passover that year. Again, though, reading the book of Ruth was part of the annual Shavuot harvest celebration. And God declared there, you'll find in Leviticus 23, that the Feast of Shavuot should take place 50 days after Passover. And this is nailed to the Hebrew calendar. Passover falls based on the cycles of the moon. So the date of Passover is going to slide on the springtime calendar just a little bit. But wherever you plant Passover, 50 days later is going to be the Feast of Shavuot. The Hebrews experienced this great deliverance from Egypt through all the many signs and wonders, culminating with the 10 plagues. The 10th was the death of the firstborn and the 
angel of death passing over those houses that were covered by the blood of the lamb. So you have that very first Passover, the nation Israel makes its exodus out of Egypt, and 50 days later, after that deliverance, God gave his law to Moses on Mount Sinai. That would be the first feast of Shavuot ever. The very first Passover, exactly 50 days later, you get the giving of the law to Moses. So when the Jew reads the book of Ruth annually, it is to commemorate the harvest celebration, as well as to commemorate the giving of the law. So it is looked upon in the Jewish mind as the birth day of Judaism. On that first Shabbat, the giving of the law, the birth of Judaism. Now you fast forward in time to Jerusalem, AD 30, and Jesus Christ is crucified on Passover. Now, nailed to the calendar 50 days after that date is going to be the Shavuot. Or, as they call it in the New Testament by its Greek name, 50, it's a Greek word that means 50 days, Pentecost. So we know that celebration as the Feast of Pentecost more than we call it by its Hebrew name, Shavuot. It is looked upon, the, the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit came in, in a mighty rushing wind, and began to indwell the believer, that is looked upon as the birthday of the church. So on the Hebrew calendar, you have the birthday of Judaism, and then millennia later, you have the birthday of the church on the Feast of Shavuot, or Pentecost. A coincidence? I don't think so. It's divinely organized, divinely inspired, and divinely executed. Just a couple of observations regarding this Feast of Shavuot, a.k.a. Pentecost, whichever you like to call it. It is a consecrated feast, and it requires two loaves of leavened bread as part of the sacrifice and the offerings that are made on this feast day. Remember, it's rehearsing something and pointing to something. The two loaves then pointed to Jew and Gentile. It's a type of Jew and Gentile who are made one, a brand new creation under Christ. Naomi and Ruth, who are come together under the covering of one Redeemer. And so when the Hebrews are going through the motions of the Shavuot festival, little knowing that they are creating this picture that it is no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female, that we are a new creation in Christ and we are all one in him. And it's pictured beautifully in their ceremony of the Feast of Shavuot. There is so much more involved in that feast I'm going to leave it with you to dig it out, but I will just, just to pique your curiosity. Why leavened bread? Hmm, leaven in scripture is a picture, a type, a symbol of sin. Jesus said, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And then he told the kingdom parable, and he said, the kingdom is like, the kingdom of heaven is like a woman who had hid leaven in three measures of meal. If you were a Hebrew, you'd be horrified by that because the three measures of meal are the fellowship offering, 
Why would you put a symbol for sin in the fellowship offering? Hmm. No extra charge for that. Off you go. Have fun. <laughs> we are going to move on to another prophetic type. Three weeks ago, I believe it was, we painted a very merry picture of the threshing floor scene with a festival atmosphere and much celebration and feasting, great rejoicing for all those involved. But I would like to look at the threshing floor through a prophetic lens. In Genesis chapter 50, verse 10, it will be the first time you will find the threshing floor mentioned in Scripture. And the context of this particular story is Joseph is taking his father Jacob's body to bury it. And they arrive at the threshing floor of Atad, and they mourn there at the threshing floor for seven days with a very great and sorrowful lamentation. Seven days, very great and sorrowful lamentation. Does that make anybody think of something? Does that just kind of make you go, uh-huh, that sounds vaguely familiar? Well, let's see. The first mention of a word or a phrase is very important. This is a, a principle of Bible study that I appreciate greatly. It's called the law of first mention. The very first time in Scripture a word or a phrase is used it's like a seed, and that seed holds all of the promise that a seed can hold. And as you plant it in the ground, of course, it's going to grow, and it's going to begin to increase and spread its wings, if you will, its limbs and branches and things. But no matter how much time goes by, the essential, fundamental meaning in that seed remains the same. And so when you look for the very first time a word or a phrase is mentioned, most of the time when you're in the Old Testament, you're going to find it in Genesis. It is really the seed bed for everything. But you take a word or a phrase, you look at the context in which it's used, and then you begin to see what the Lord is conveying. Why did he use that specific word in that specific context? Then every time after you find the word throughout Scripture, you remember, well, he, he said it, here, I bet it still means that here. For example, when you read about uh, birds in Scripture, especially the unclean birds, when you get to the New Testament, you find that very often in the parables that Jesus tells, parables, now not real life birds, but parables, birds are ministers of Satan. So if they're ministers of Satan the very first time a parable is used, they're always going to continue to be that. Suddenly they're not going to be good guys. Okay, so the kingdom of heaven is like, and you've got birds nesting in trees. That's not a good thing because the foundation, the first time it was mentioned, let you know this is not good. You follow what I'm saying? So you just, just track it out for yourself. You should search the scriptures daily and prove whether these things be so. But the first time that a threshing floor is mentioned sets the tone for our understanding of how it will be used, especially prophetically, throughout scripture. So if you consider these seven days, seven days, a foreshadowing of seven years of a very great and sorrowful lamentation, does that ring a big bell with you? Okay. I see the threshing floor as a similitude, a type, a picture, a shadow of the great tribulation. And it's a striking model. 
It is, if you look at the imagery of what happens at a threshing floor, the model begins to take shape in your mind because it is a place of destruction. If you recall from our previous study, the sheaves of grain would be thrown on the ground and then they would be repeatedly trampled on by animals or beat with flails, sticks, or clubs. Or those great heavy rollers would be dragged across the grain, the sheaves of grain, and it would crush and pulverize them into the ground. A very destructive picture. The grain then is separated from the chaff, which is driven away by the wind, and the useless remains are gathered up and burned. To me, that is very graphic imagery. Now, we're going to run through some scripture here, so get your track shoes on. We're going to start in the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 2, because I want you to see his use of the threshing floor in his retelling of Nebuchadnezzar's prophetic dream. Now, we will not have time to give the background as we go through here. So again, I want you to go and read for yourselves the entirety of chapter 2. We're just going to look at verses 34 and 35. But keep your antenna up for those threshing floor images that Daniel is going to use here. Daniel 2, verse 34. Well, I should say probably that what he is describing is a very large, multi-metallic statue that Nebuchadnezzar dreamed about. And each one of the metals from the head down to the toes is a depiction of a world empire that would come. The head of gold being Nebuchadnezzar. And then as time went by and different empires would rise and conquer, each one is depicted in a metal till you get to the Roman Empire, the feet of iron mixed with clay. So what Daniel is telling Nebuchadnezzar is, you saw this and this is what it means. Then he gets here and he says, verse 34, you continued looking until a stone was cut without hands. It struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and crushed them. The, then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed all at the same time. And here it is, became like chaff from the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them was found. But the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Now, this is a prophecy of what is going to happen in the great tribulation. And all of the kingdoms of the world, all of them are going to be crushed by this stone, this stone that was cut without hands. It is Jesus Christ, who is the head of the corner, the chief cornerstone. And he will mount a government that will go throughout the whole world for a thousand year reign that we call the millennial reign of Christ. So this, Daniel is telling Nebuchadnezzar, generations upon generations ago. And we are waiting and watching for the unfolding of this prophecy. Now, Micah, another one of the Old Testament prophets, is going to describe the battle of Armageddon. And he tells us that the whole world during that time period in history is going to align together against the Lord, but that the Lord will be victorious over all. So for your notes, write Micah 4.12. 
And if you're real quick, you can hop over there, but we're going to read just Micah 4.12. And again, look at the threshing floor imagery. He says, but they, that's the whole of all the nations that have gathered against the Lord, but they do not know the thoughts of the Lord and they do not understand his purpose for he has gathered them like sheaves to the threshing floor and not one will survive that battle. The Lord will reign supreme. The great tribulation is also known as the time of Jacob's trouble or the time of Jacob's distress. You will read that in Jeremiah chapter 30, verse 7. But I want to go to what Mark records regarding this time period. So Mark chapter 13 is where we're going next. Mark 13 and verses 19 and 20. Now here, Mark is recording Jesus' words on the subject of this battle of Armageddon and the Great Tribulation. I'm sorry, not the Battle of Armageddon, the time of Jacob's trouble, just the Great Tribulation period. He says, verse 19, for those days will be a time of tribulation. Now in my Bible, the words time and of are in italics. That usually means that the translators have added it to help the flow of an English reader. But very often you can take those italics words out and you get back to more the original meaning. So it says, for those days will be a tribulation, such as has not occurred since the beginning of creation, which God created until now and never will. Just cast your mind back over history and think about the time of tribulation that has been experienced by this planet. And he's saying, nothing like this has ever happened or ever will again. This is the most devastating time in human history, up to and including the flood of Noah. He says, unless, verse 20, the Lord had shortened those days, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. That word tribulation is an interesting one. In the Latin, it's tribulum. And a tribulum was a threshing sledge. So we get the word tribulation from the actual equipment that did the threshing. And the ancient Romans, and it's still used actually in parts of Africa today, they would get big boards and they would embed in them numbers of sharp pieces of rock or metal. And then they would drag those across the sheaves to the threshing. So a tribulum is this instrument of destruction, and we just borrowed it straight over and made it into a word, tribulation. Zephaniah is one, just one, of the prophets who records the devastation, the great and terrible devastation that will occur during the threshing of the great tribulation period. So we're going to go to Zephaniah now, back in the Old Testament. You're not too far from it because it's one of the last books in the Old Testament. Zephaniah, we will read verses, uh, excuse me, chapter 1, and we will go from verse 14 through 18. 
Zephaniah 1, 14 through 18. But I will say just verse 7 catches my attention every time I come to this chapter. And it says, be silent before the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is near. When you see that phrase, the day of the Lord, sometimes in the Old Testament, we'll just simply say that day. Those are code words for this time period in history that we call the Great Tribulation. So when he says, be silent, be reverent, be silent before the Lord, the day of the Lord is near. Now, verse 14, near is the great day of the Lord, near and coming very quickly. Listen, the day of the Lord. In it, the warrior cries out bitterly, a day of wrath is that day, a day of trouble and distress, a day of destruction and desolation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet and battle cry against the fortified cities and the high corner towers. I will bring distress on men so that they will walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord and their blood will be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. Neither their silver nor their gold will be able to deliver them on the day of the Lord's wrath. And all the earth will be devoured in the fire of his jealousy, for he will make a complete end, indeed a terrifying one, of all the inhabitants of the earth. Those are terrifying images, but we have a blessed hope. 1 Thessalonians 1.10, write that down for your notes. This is the one you want to go home and memorize and meditate on when you start to feel the imminent approach of this great and terrible day. 1 Thessalonians 1.10 speaks about us. If you are in Christ Jesus, this is for you. If Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, you have accepted his blood sacrifice for your sin, this is you. It says that we who serve a living and true God, we are waiting for his son from heaven who he raised from the dead. That is Jesus who rescues us from the wrath to come. Hallelujah. Aren't you glad that you have the hope and the promise of Jesus Christ? He, the, Christ in me, the hope of glory. That's one of those biblical expressions that I just walk around saying to myself sometimes because it just makes me happy. Christ in me, the hope of glory. Now, Jesus said, in this world, you will have tribulation. You, as a believer in Christ, will have tribulation. But it's not the great tribulation. I am firmly convinced of that. The Lord has promised that his bride will not see the days of threshing. I heard one pastor teach years ago, why would the Lord beat his wife up before the honeymoon? He's going to get us out of here in that event we call the rapture. And I don't know whether it will be the rapture or it will be death that overtakes me first. I'm good to go either way. But I just feel like that rapture is about to happen before this great and terrible day even begins. The Lord has promised that, I think, through many proofs in his word. But one of the proofs that gives me great encouragement is right here buried in the book of Ruth. Verse 
During that threshing floor scene, where is the bride? She's at the feet of her Redeemer, under the covering of his protection, under his wings. Oh, blessed be the name of the Lord. I'm all for that. Now, with this in your mind, we have the Feast of Shavuot read annually to commemorate the harvest celebration, as well as the birth of Judaism. We also have the fact that every year they read this book, and so before their eyes annually is this beautiful image of the kinsman redeemer. Then you add to that all that we just saw about the threshing floor and the great tribulation, and those things together pointing to and prophesying what will happen, I believe, in Genesis, excuse me, Revelation chapter 5. So we're going to take a quick look at Rev 5, and then next week we're going to pick up and finish our Bible study in this chapter. So I encourage you to read ahead, go back and read all the references you've written down in your notes today, but include in that reading the chapter 5 of Revelation. In this chapter, you're going to see our Goel front and center. We know that he was willing and able to do the work of redemption for as many as will come to him. But one of the things Boaz did not do for Ruth is the role of avenger of blood. And when we get to Revelation 5, you're going to see the avenger of blood step forward. And it will only just begin. You have to read the rest of the book of Revelation to watch that office of the Goel unfold. But this is exciting stuff. And I believe we are going to be right there with him in the throne room of heaven as these events of Revelation 5 begin to unfold. And y'all, I think it could happen at any moment in the twinkling of an eye. We could be experiencing this moment. So as you read Revelation chapter 5, you're going to see there's song lyrics in there. That's for you. You get to memorize the lyrics today so that you'll be able to sing the song ready to go in that moment. So here we have the moment when our Goel, Jesus Christ, will take possession of all that he paid for on the cross of Calvary. And all that he paid for is the planet Earth and all of creation. He is going to take possession of it, and I do believe we're going to be standing right there watching him do it. Boaz now did not redeem Elimelech all of his land or his property. He didn't do it because he wanted or needed more land. He was a mighty man of wealth, remember? He, uh, you know, another tract of land might have been fine, but he certainly didn't need more real estate. Boaz bought Elimelech's land to get the bride. Jesus doesn't need this planet. He could make another one without even half trying. But he redeemed the planet to get you and to get me. And he is willing and able to continue that work of redemption for all that will come to him. He paid the required price for the joy of obtaining the bride. He doesn't need this spit of earth, that is for sure. Boaz so clearly lays out for us what a goel is supposed to look like. But in every type, at some point, it breaks down because Boaz did not. He probably used currency to do the work of redemption, some sort of currency. He did not have to die a sacrificial death to buy his bride. So the model will break down. Like if you had a perfectly beautiful model airplane 
accurate in every detail. You still couldn't get in it and fly. So we know that Jesus Christ is the real deal, where Boaz was just a shadow of what was to come. Revelation 5.1, I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book written inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals. This is John the Beloved writing the book of Revelation through divine inspiration. Somehow God lifted the veil and ushered him into the spiritual realm, and he records all the things that he sees. No shadows. He sees the real deal. So he sees this book. What he saw, the Greek word is biblion. It means a written document or a scroll. We have pages in our books, leaves that we turn over. You know, when I was little and I heard that expression, turn over a new leaf, I didn't know that leaves were, pages of a book were called a leaf. I, I, you know, I'm out at the tree going, how is this changing some behavior, turning over a new leaf? Did anybody else think that? Nobody? Oh, one. Blessed be. I didn't want to be the only stupid one in the room. <laughs> Not that y'all are stupid. But, you know, anyway, I always thought new leaf meant a real leaf on a real tree. So now if you still think that, now you know. So you don't have to embarrass yourself. Okay. So anyway, he sees a scroll, not a book with leaves in it. That's what they were using during John's time. And these scrolls would be as long as was needed for whatever the written work. Uh, For example, the book of Acts would be 32 feet long. The book of Revelation, 15 and a half feet long, but little Jude would require only one sheet of parchment. So they would take individual pieces of parchment and sew them together, as many as were needed for whatever the work was that you were working on. Uh, The Dead Sea Scrolls, the book of Isaiah is 17 sheets long. It's 23 and a half feet long. Now, the modern scrolls that they use to write the Torah are quite long. They are, uh, can be from 62 to 84 sheets of parchment that have been cured and tanned and scraped and prepared according to exacting Levitical specifications. And as you can imagine, they are quite heavy. Uh, they stand about two feet in height, and they weigh anywhere between 20 and 25 pounds. Now, that's impressive, but this is the part that really makes me think. Uh, Every single Torah contains exactly 300, excuse me, yeah, 304,805 letters. Every single one of them. 304,805 letters. They take about a year to write, entirely by hand. And if there is one mistake made, it's destroyed. The whole work is destroyed. There's no eraser. Can you imagine writing number 304,804, and then you make a mistake. The whole thing is completely destroyed. I know. Isn't that amazing? Um, Revelation 5.1, and I tell you all of that, y'all, because we owe a great debt to those who have shepherded and guarded the word of God for generation upon generation. We owe a tremendous debt of gratitude for those individuals. But we're going to get back here to John's scroll now. I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book, a scroll, written inside and on the back. John tells us that this scroll has writing 
inside and on the back. That makes it a legal document, what I believe to be a title deed. If you have ever purchased a house, you know there's a title that is involved in it. Now, these are uh, very specific to the culture of the day. Uh, do you remember the law of redemption when we discussed that? The law of redemption made provision for property to be redeemed or persons if you were sold into slavery or sold yourself into slavery. The law of redemption provided that these things could be redeemed back to the original owner. When a Jewish family sold property or persons, the document that was written listed all of the goods that were sold on the inside of the scroll. So whatever it was that you were selling, all of the details of that would be written inside. And then on the back side, you would write the terms of redemption. Whatever it was going to cost, at whatever point in time, if someone walked up and they wanted to redeem your property or your person, all they had to do was look at the outside of the scroll. So if you had a jar or a shelf full of scrolls all rolled up, you would be able to tell at a glance which ones were legal documents because they had writing on the outside. Makes perfect sense to me. That kind of scroll was called an opistograph. We get our word opposite from the Greek word opistho. And so these are opistographs, and they would be recognizable immediately. And John sees one of those in the hand of him who sits on the throne. And he sees that it's sealed with seven seals. Again, in verse 1, he saw the scroll written on the inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals. Now, before I talk too much about these seven seals, just a point for historical accuracy, the Emperor Vespasian and Caesar Augustus both had wills that were sealed with seven seals. But those were different from these, uh, this document that John sees because their wills, you would write on the parchment, whatever you were going to write in your will, and then you would roll it down and seal it, covering what had just been written to that point. Then you'd continue writing, and you would roll and seal again. Did you just ask me a question? Oh, okay. Sorry. Keep it to yourself. So, so you would write and roll and seal, write and roll and seal. And their wills both had seven seals. And what that would do is prevent unworthy persons from tampering with the contents of the will. If you came at the appointed time and you were going to read the will and you opened it up and all the seals were open, you would know that they had been doctored in some way. But that's not what John sees. Those seals are on the inside where you cannot see them. He says he sees a seal, excuse me, a scroll written on the inside and the out, and he visibly can see the seals there. So that generally indicated that the very first seal that was put down was put by the author. Then all the rest indicated some kind of provision, some kind of requirement that must be met before you could open the seals. And they would be written on there as well. So what kind of conditions must have been listed there? Uh, who would be eligible? Who would be worthy to open the seals? Uh, let's see what happens. John sees the writing on the outside of the scroll, and he understood what it meant. Whatever text was visible to his eye, he was able to read it. And his reaction 
to what he read there should cause us to key in and realize this is very important. When he sees what is written on the outside, verse 2, and I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the book or to look into it. Then, John says, I began to weep greatly because no one, no human was found worthy to open the book or look into it. What that says literally, John wept convulsively. Now, think for a minute. They inventoried human beings in three locations. So at this time in history, there are humans in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. Mm-hmm. That's a very interesting thing. But wherever they're looking, there is no man from Adam to the last man standing that was found worthy to open this book. And John got it. Because if the conditions cannot be fulfilled, then the land stays in the hands of the one who has it. And who has this land right now? Satan is the prince of this age, the god of this world. If there is no one to take this title deed to the planet Earth and do the work of redemption, it falls to the usurper's hands permanently. And that's what John saw, and he wept convulsively. As I said, Boaz beautifully modeled the work of redemption for us. He, as I mentioned a minute ago, probably used some sort of form of currency, but he did not have to lay his life down and bleed out in a horrible sacrifice to get his bride. But the Lord Jesus Christ did do that. His work of redemption required the shedding of innocent blood. Do you suppose that's what it says on the outside of that scroll? That the only worthy individual to open these seals must be the perfect, sinless son of Adam, man of God, I wonder what it says. You know, we don't, we're not told. You read the book of Revelation, you will not see the answer, but you will see those seals getting opened. And that's a great thing. We're going to look at that a little bit next week. Uh, as you guys read ahead, we're going to look at some details in that great and glorious day. It's going to be something beautiful. But as we close, I don't want that heavy burden of the great tribulation and John weeping convulsively to be the shadow that hangs over you this week. I do fully anticipate the rapture of the entire church if death doesn't overtake me first. But I have a strong conviction that in these last days, I need to live in such a way that brings so much glory to the Lord that he will indeed say, well done, good and faithful servant. I need to live in that hopeful expectation that he's going to rescue me out, but I also need to take a stand and live as if I were gonna have to go through that great tribulation. What would my walk look like if I thought I had to go through it? If I had to be the one who offered a cool drink of water at the expense of my head in that horrible day? How would I live differently if I thought the Lord was going to take me through that tribulation? Would I be found worthy? Would, I, would my walk be something that would bring glory to his name even in the darkest time? Because in this world, we will have tribulation. 
I do believe not the great one, but still I think it's, it's important to get alone with the Lord and say, how am I doing in your eyes, Lord? Am I a light shining in the darkness today? Because if I can't do it today, I would certainly not be able to do it in that time frame. We need to live in hope, that great expectation of our deliverance, that our Goel, our kinsman redeemer, is going to come and get us and take us to the Father's house that he's been preparing for millennia. But I need to take a stand for him today, just like I would if I was going to have to suffer the if all of the events of that great tribulation period. We need to live hopefully, live expectantly and fervently while it is day, because the night is definitely coming. Let's pray. Father God, you are awesome in glory, and you have worked wonders in us. We thank you so much for your everlasting, steadfast love and faithfulness and pray that we would bring glory to your name as we continue to occupy until you come, and as we continue to wait and hope for that great day when our bridegroom brings us home. May we be found worthy. Jesus, it is in your name we pray. And the bride of Christ said, Amen. Now, church, go and sin no more.